Welcome to the Readerly Report. Your hosts are Gail Weiswasser and Nicole Bonilla. We hope you will enjoy our candid book conversations, recommendations, and observations on the reading life. Thanks so much for joining us. Welcome to another edition of the Readerly Report. Gail and I are super excited today because we're going to be talking about coming-of-age novels, and we have a guest to help us to guide us through coming-of-age novels. We're going to be talking to Jean Kwok. She has a new novel that came out on June 4th, Searching for Sylvie Lee. Gail and I are big fans of Jean's. Like, we have read Mambo in Chinatown, I think, girl... In translation is one that Gail has read. And you're reading Searching for Sylvie Lee now, right, Gail? I am. I'm doing it on audio. That means that Jean is going to be one of the authors that you've read all of her books. Yes. All of their works. Yay. (laughs) And we're going to talk about that today. So, Gail, why don't you get us started a little bit by introducing Jean, and then we will go down our regular format, what we've been reading, what we're looking forward to, and then ask Jean some questions. All right, great. So Jean is the award-winning New York Times and international best-selling author of Searching for Sylvie Lee, which Nicole mentioned just came out. Also Girl in Translation and Mambo in Chinatown, which are two books we have discussed on this show multiple times. Jean's work has been published in 18 countries and taught in universities, colleges, and high schools around the world. She has been selected for many honors, including the American Library Association Alex Award, the Chinese American Librarians Association Best Book Award, and the Sunday Times EFG Short Story Award International Shortlist. Most interestingly, Jean immigrated from Hong Kong to Brooklyn when she was five, worked in a Chinatown clothing factory for most of her childhood while living in an unheated, roach-infested apartment, which will sound very familiar if you've read Girl in Translation. In between her undergrad degree at Harvard and her MFA in fiction at Columbia, she worked for three years as a professional ballroom dancer, which will also sound familiar if you've read Mambo in Chinatown. I cross paths with Jean 10 years ago, we were introduced by mutual friends who knew that Jean was a debut author and that I was a book blogger. And we have been corresponding and Facebooking ever since. So I can say that Jean travels a ton, speaks a ton, talks to lots of schools and students about her books, and has had tremendous, tremendous early success with Searching for Sylvie Lee including, why don't you tell everybody about the most exciting thing that happened yeah. last week? Get some claps going. Good news. Yeah. Is that me? Do you want me to tell us? Yes. This yeah. Is yeah. Yes. Tell us about what happened on that on a particular early morning right. show. Right. Uh, well, first mm-hmm. of all, I want to thank the both of you for having me on the Readerly Report because I just love your show and I love both of you. You're both such insightful, thoughtful readers. And so I'm thrilled to be here. Uh, indeed, there, uh, my Searching for Sylvie Lee came out on June 4th, and we heard just a tiny bit before that that it had been chosen by the Today Show as the read with Jenna Pick. So that was incredibly exciting. I'm completely honored and thrilled. That's amazing. Now, from a day-to-day perspective, does that – I mean, you've had – you've been on in like three – uh, summer reads book, anticipated reads list. Um, you know, you've, uh, I follow you on Facebook and in a very humble way, you're posting a lot of these lists, which is great to see. And, you know, from multiple magazines and sites and everything, but for something like this with the today show, does that make a really big difference in, 
interest in your book or people wanting you to speak? Like, has that, have you noticed a market change since that happened? Yes, it is. The Today Show is one of the few things that really can move the needle. And, you know, I mean, the reception for Searching for Sylvie Lee has been incredible. And I'm so grateful to all of the magazines and newspapers and bloggers and early readers who kind of gathered behind the book from the beginning. So that's definitely a part of his success that people read it and wrote about it and put it on. I think we hit more than 40 must-read or best book lists before the book ever came out, so before publication date. So that was amazing. But the Today Show has such an enormous reach. I mean, it just kind of goes beyond the normal, you know, really fanatic book readers market. So it, it definitely did make a difference because my publisher needed to start reprinting the moment they heard the news. And even with that, they are rush shipping orders to keep the book in stock everywhere. That's amazing. Yeah, you've got a back, you're backlogged on a couple of major sites. Yeah, the, so. a couple of sites have already sold out, but it should be resolved very quickly because I know that they had anticipated this and they'd actually sent out a huge shipment last week already. So it's just a matter of getting it out of the warehouse and, you know, into um, the mail again to people who've ordered it. But it is, you know, it is kind of amazing, the response to the novel. That's incredible. Congratulations. It's, oh, it's thank really you. Great. I'm so thrilled. So this is showing us that network television is not <laughs> No, <dead>. God, no, no. <laughs> Much despite what we might all think. Does Oprah still put books anymore? Does she, she doesn't do her monthly book with club, she does, does. she? Oh, she and, does. And remember, I don't know if you knew that when Apple announced all of their big news about the new shows that they have in development. They're uh, also yes. Oprah's coming back with a book club. So Yes, and Apple's going to do all the support of it. That's ringing right. a bell when you said that. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, you know, it was between us and they oh, went man. with Oprah. Oh, man. Jeez, what were they thinking? <laughs> <laughs> Crazy. So, all right. Well, that is incredible. I started the book on audio, which I'm very excited about. And I have a question for you. Are, who... Are there three different narrators? There are. And in fact, I'm really attached to the audiobook because I do think that the narrators are so important. And they, mm -hmm. they asked me who I wanted. They gave me a choice for each. They gave me some fantastic choices for each of the three actresses because, of course, Searching for Sylvie Lee is a suspenseful family drama or a mystery about Sylvie Lee being missing and the story's told by three people. It's told by Amy, her younger sister, Sylvie Lee herself, whose story is backdated a month, so we can follow along with her, even as Amy's finding clues, and her mother, Ma. And so these three voices had to be kind of three tremendous actresses who I thought suited the personality of each of the narrators and who could kind of you know, feel good together that could complement each other in the right ways. And then we were very lucky to get all of my first choices. So I was thrilled with what they had done. I feel like that means that you've arrived because <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, with sometimes you don't know, like I was talking to someone whose book was about to be published and I, I had gotten an advanced copy of the audio and I was like, Oh, did you hear it? And they're like, no, I didn't, you know, they don't have. So it seems like you're in the point now where you have information. And that was going <laughs> to lead me to one of 
my questions for you. This is your third book and there's lots of buzz behind it, but you were a debut author at a more tenuous time when you kind of have to get yourself in front of people. So how have things changed since you published your first book, which was what in 2010, 2011 to now? It's true. I mean, I think the the ways that you have to do publicity and marketing are, have changed tremendously from you know, 2010 to now, 2019, I do think that I, I have been extremely lucky in that I've always had a really supportive publisher who asked, you know, and cared about what I thought and if I was happy with what they were doing and, you know, made sure I was comfortable with stuff. So things like from my very, so for Girl in Translation, my debut novel, Mambo in Chinatown and Searching for Sylvie Lee, they always asked me to pick the audiobook narrator. They noticed did not ask me to read myself because I kind of sound like Minnie Mouse. But, you know, and I also, I also <laughs> feel like, you know, I'm not, I'm not a great reader. When I read, when I hear these fantastic professionals reading my work, I'm like, oh my God, I'm so emotional. It's so touching. You know, <laughs> while when I do it, I'm like, la, 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 la. So anyway, but um, no, I've had fantastic publishers who kind of wanted to make sure I was happy with that. I'm now with William Morrow. And from the beginning, you know, even before this book kind of became so big, they were just very careful about making sure I was happy with the cover and with what they were doing and what I wanted to talk about in public or not. You know, in terms of big changes, I mean, in 2010, social media existed, but not the way it does now. I mean, now on the online presence is so important. And to be able to respond to fans and to have contact with fans is um, it's really huge. And I think it's a real gift, I think, both for the reader and for the writer, because you can have a kind of direct contact that wasn't possible before. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Did you do? Did you listen to a lot of ta- like uh, recordings of their voices to make? The I decision? did, and I actually I had been given some tapes that I was supposed to evaluate for each person, but then sometimes like there was one narrator who I didn't choose because I felt she had a kind of aggressive edge to her voice that I thought suited some stories very well, but maybe not mine. And then I made sure to look up her other work to see if that was unique to that one piece I had read, or if it was kind of, you know, a part of her voice. It seemed like it was. So regretfully, I felt that one was maybe not the right person to read one of the three narrators in this book. So I did really kind of go through it very thoroughly to make sure that I was choosing the right person. I also think in general, people are paying a lot more attention to who narrates stories. I mean, once upon a time, audio was just whoever you could get throw in there and get reading your book. And that's kind of what an audio book was like. But audio has exploded. Like it's the fastest growing category out of books. I think ebooks have stagnated and print books are holding steady, steady. But audio is the place where, especially with the growth of podcasts, people are, you know, looking to have more audio. And I think that people are probably choosing, you know, they're making more productions out of books, you're seeing a lot more multicast books. And so there's a lot more that 
a lot more thought, I think, and care is going into narration at this point in the game. I think, I think that's really true. And I think that an extra complication of my book is, of course, that the three narrators, Sylvie, Ma, and Amy, are also all each thinking in their own language. So Sylvie's thinking in Dutch, Ma is thinking in Chinese, and Amy is thinking in English. And that's a part of the, you know, the dynamics of the book. So obviously the entire book is written in English. But, you know, we're hearing their inner dialogue in each of their chapters and we're picking up clues because the reader is the only person who has access to the inner thoughts of all three of these women. So I, the accents were also an issue. You know, can they do accents well? If they do a Chinese accent, do they know the difference between a Mandarin accent and a Cantonese accent, for example? So all of these issues, you know, does... Amy sound like the younger sister? Does Sylvie sound like the gorgeous, brilliant older sister? You know, so those are all things that I was trying to think about when I chose the three narrators. Gail, well, you're listening to the audio. What's yeah. your take on that so far? Um, Have you heard all three of the narrators so I, far? Just barely. I'm, I'm very early in. I do, you do most of my audio in the car. And because like I started it on a Friday and I've been in the kids zone all weekend, I haven't had that much time alone in the car. Yeah, I would say that 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 is holding true. Uh, Ma feels like she's, she sounds like someone for whom English is not her first language. Um, she sounds sort of tentative and, and emotional and yet very caring. And Amy sounds like the younger sister, but tenacious and sort of ready to like figure out what's going on. And I've just gotten to Sylvie, and I think that you cast her really well. Like, she's authoritative and sounds like she's got her shit together, but yet, obviously, is somebody who's hiding something. So that is coming across. So I think, I think well done on, on across the board on that. All right, guys. So let's shift a little bit, and let's talk about what we've been reading or what we're looking forward to. Because I know Gail and I... I'm still in the middle of a big book that I'm reading. I'm reading Elizabeth Gilbert's City of Girls, and it's several hundred pages. And I'm not as jet-lagged anymore as when I last spoke, and I was just burning through several books. Actually, Jean, I just got back from Hong Kong. Oh, my God. Wow. (laughs) That's a big trip. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. It was really fun. I would have to go again, I feel like, to get more of a sense of it because – I was visiting a friend, and so it was sort of a girl's trip, a bunch, you know, one of my friends just moved to Hong, back to Hong Kong. I think she came here when she was 12, and she just moved back to Hong Kong for work. And so I went with another girlfriend, so we're just playing catch up with her, and we hit all of the touristy spots, of course. So I didn't really get a chance to just sit around and absorb the culture, but it was, I had a, a oh, lot of fun. Oh, it sounds amazing. So New York. It reminds me of New York so much. I think I had a sense of being at home there. Yeah, yeah. I I always, you know, because of course I was born in Hong Kong and then moved to New York, I, I actually didn't know that life could be different. And then when I married a Dutch guy and moved to the Netherlands, I was like I would be in one of their largest cities and be like, so nice village, you know, where where's the city now? Uh, <laughs> So because it's just, you know, the world is so much different, actually, outside of a large city. Right. I know. I deal with that a lot, you know, with New York, because I'll go and I'll visit places that 
other people have told me, like Chicago, for example, they're just like, oh my God, it's so this, it's so great. But, you know, to me, New York, Chicago compared to New York is just, it's so much smaller. And most things that, that people marvel about or are really excited about, you know, we have in New York or I've experienced before. So it's, it's always interesting to travel as a New Yorker. Right, it's true. Although I do have to say that sometimes I'm also really glad to be out of New York, you know. I'm in a place like Chicago or Boston or I'm in Cleveland. I'm recording this in Cleveland, Ohio now. It's also like, oh, God, people are so nice to you. You know, they're not waiting to steal your stuff the moment you turn around. And it's not like New York is all like that. But, you know, it's like New York. You're in the CVS trying to buy something. And, you know, everyone on the line is like a Come on, swipe the credit card. We're waiting, you know. So there are joys of being outside of New York, too. Definitely. I followed it up with Bangkok, <laughs> oh my so God. another oh big my God. city. What a trip. <laughs> okay, so Gail. Oh, yeah. So I don't have much news since you and I last spoke. Um, but you're going to tell us what, like, what's coming up on your TBR. Give us a sneak yeah, so, peek. What you think. I mean, you know me. I'm kind of a mood reader, but... Um, I do have a few that I've got my eye on and a few, uh, at least one that I have to read. So one is um, my July, are we talking about July already? My July in real life book club, as opposed to my readerly book club. We are going to be reading Trust Exercise uh, by by Susan Choi, which I had picked, I had gotten a copy of it like five months ago and I picked it up and I read the first chapter and then I just ended up putting it down because I think there were other pressing, pressing deadline books or something. You had mentioned that. Yeah, but it wasn't because I didn't like it. It just was like more of a timing thing. So, and because I, I own the copy and it's not a library, you know, there's nothing was expiring. So you could bump it. I could bump it. So it is now scheduled though. So I think we're talking around the second week of July, like the 13th or 14th, something like that, we're, we're meeting. So I will be reading Trust Exercise. Then there's this book that I'm so excited about that I heard about on a podcast. And Nicole, I don't think you and I talked about this on the show. Did we talk about Evie Drake? Maybe we didn't. Um, I think you might have mentioned it briefly. I know it's one that I have. Okay. So this is a book that's written by Linda Holmes, who is the pop culture correspondent for NPR. And I think she has her own podcast, Pop Culture Happy Hour. And she's written a book about a woman whose husband has just died. And then um, her, I think it's her husband's friend is a, is a major league pitcher and he's got what's called the yips, which is the phenomenon when something is off and you just can't pitch. Like you can't hit your target. You can't throw the ball the right way. And you're just in this huge slump and it's obviously, you know, devastating for a a professional athlete. So he comes to stay with her because he's going to try to like take some time off and get rid of the yips and she's in mourning. And then I think, I think ultimately the, the two get together. I think it's sort of a romantic comedy type book. But I was going to say, it sounds like a Hallmark movie. Yeah. I mean, I think it's light, but um, she was just so funny when, hearing this interview. I heard her on another podcast called The Podcast, and her interview was great. And it's got baseball, and you know me, I'm obsessed with baseball. So this book seemed up my alley. So I think it comes out in a couple weeks, and um, I have the audio from uh, Penguin Random House. And so I'm going to try to get my hands on the print too, so I can do either read them in tandem or just do the print. I just wanted to say about trust exercise. Just, uh, I met Susan Choi and her editor at 
the last AWP, and I mean, it does sound fantastic, that book, because it has such an unusual structure, and she's such a brilliant author by herself. So I, I can, that's one that I'm also really looking forward to reading. Oh, good. Okay. I really want to read that as well. Maybe we'll discuss that one later on. Yeah, too. maybe, yeah, maybe that can be one of our, like our August book club book or something. Because from mm-hmm. what I understand, there's some shifting perspectives and some sort of interesting narrative exactly. tricks going on. And I think that might be good. Yeah. Although we'll we have to be careful with spoilers, but yeah. Um, so, okay. So trust exercise. And then yesterday I was in it sitting in my room and I couldn't find the book I'm reading right now, which is the mother-in-law. And I was looking around for it and I couldn't find it. So I just kind of reached over and picked up things you save in a fire by Catherine center. And I've had this book on, I guess, on e-reader forever, but then they just sent me a copy of it. And I've liked other Catherine Center books, which I feel like they're also kind of light, but they deal with interesting topics and they have a little bit of emotional heft to them. And I read like the first 15 pages and that also looked good. So I'll try to bump that one up the list too. So those would be like my three sort of likely TBR books. But as you know me, I sometimes bump things on and off with no rhyme or reason behind. So Jean, do you get to do any reading when you're on this crazy book tour? Or are you just too busy and too well, tired? I am extremely busy and tired. I think this is probably the most demanding book tour I've ever been on, not because of anything to do with the book tour itself, but just because there's so much publicity. The the book is still hitting lists all the time, and which is I'm thrilled by, but uh, I, it makes me feel kind of guilty and out of control because I'm usually good about trying to get the news out when we get a great review or we, you know, we've just gotten a wonderful review in the Washington Post and we hit in style and we hit a whole bunch of other major lists, but I don't, I just don't have time to get them out yeah. there and get them on social media. But I am always reading because, you know, books are actually the thing I love more than anything else. And I'm reading right now In Another Time by Jillian Cantor. And I think she is such a fantastic, beautiful, kind of romantic and heartbreaking writer. And it's um, it's this historical novel, and it moves from Germany to England to the US. And it's about a young couple that's torn apart by um, the events leading up to World War II. And so, you know, I'm, I I mean, I don't get a lot of time to read it, but then, you know, it just starts and there's this bookshop owner, Max, and he meets this beautiful budding concert violinist, Hannah, and they have, you know, they have this incredible chemistry, but she's Jewish and he's not. And then it kind of follows along with what happens as Hitler comes to to power and, you know, there's like a, a, a timeline thing going on and it's really fantastic. So I am, um, I'm doing my best to kind of make progress on that. And then there are two other books that I've just been dying to read and I didn't bring with me because, you know, my bag is already so heavy. But The Tenth Muse by Catherine Chung is coming out very soon, I think in like 10 weeks. And I haven't, I mean, not 10 weeks, sorry, 10 days. It's coming out in mid-June and I have an early copy. And she wrote The Forgotten Country, which I thought was a really beautiful book. I've cracked open The Tenth Muse and started writing, reading just a bit. And it's 
beautifully, gorgeously written, and a really compelling story about a female mathematician in a man's world. So I can't wait to go back and go on with that. And then also White Elephant by Julie Langsdorff, which came out not that long ago. It's another book. Yeah, yeah. and that was everywhere. I mean, raves everywhere. So I am. Uh, I'm also really looking forward to reading that as well. She's. Uh, I think she's local. Yeah. DC yeah. I think author? she is a DC author. Yep. Yeah, that one looked good. Jean, you are just all over the place because you're in Ohio. And then I was looking at your schedule and it looks like you're going to be in New York like tom- day after I tomorrow. On t- so you're just going back and I, forth. I'm just traveling. You know, on book tour, you basically fly every day. So, you know, you get up really early, you pack your stuff, you go to the airport, you fly, you land, you have a few hours in your hotel if you're lucky, you do the event. And then you sleep and you do it all over again. Um, so I've been traveling around. And then my last event is on June 11th, Tuesday in New York City. So I'm really looking forward to that one because, of course, New York is my hometown. <laughs> um, all right. Well, we have a couple questions we want to ask you. Um, and we also want to talk about uh, coming-of-age books. So what should we do first? Why don't we ask you the question? Yeah, let's ask Jean some questions. All right, good. Okay. (laughs) All right. We are going to ask you a few questions. We've just covered what you're reading. Now tell us an author that you've read all of their books. You know, you warned me you'd be asking me this, and I was thinking, God, who have I? I I mean, there are authors I read a lot of their books. I think, um, like, for example, Margaret Atwood, I pretty much read almost everything she's written, but she's really prolific. So there are some books of poetry and stuff yeah. that I'm pretty sure I've missed. Um, I think the – and Lan Samantha Chang, I'm a fan of hers. I've read, I think, maybe all of her books. But the one author that I can really tell you pretty definitively that I think I really have read all of his work is Shakespeare because it I'm mm. classically trained and at Harvard – I took a class where we read every play he'd ever written from beginning to end. And I remember that was kind of a daunting experience, but also really, you know, kind of enthralling and interesting as well to read the ones that no one ever reads and then to know that you've read all of them. Dear Lord, what an intensive class. If it was a a semester, are we talking four months? Yeah, we being immersed in all of it Shakespeare? It was really, you know, they expect you to be able to keep up. And uh, it was given by Professor Marjorie Garber, who's incredibly charismatic Freudian Shakespearean. And she's just incredibly brilliant, intense, and charismatic. All right. Good. I like that answer. That's great. Okay. What's a book that everyone else has read that you have not? Well, I'm embarrassed to say this, but I have not read <laughs> Where the Crawdads Sing. And... <laughs> I know. I, I mean, it, that book is everywhere and has been everywhere for so long. And it we, sounds fantastic, well, but I haven't read it. Well, if I'm, you had I'm come only... on a couple of weeks ago, then Gail would not have read it either. <laughs> I, yeah, we're, I'm laughing because I just read it like last right. week. And I only read it because my book club picked it. And then Nicole and I just talked about it at length on the last oh. episode. So we're we're not we're laughing because like, yeah, everyone has read it. And I'm sure it feels like. You're the last one. Did you um, like it? I did like it. Uh, we, you know, we talked about this. Like, there's things about it's extremely compelling, and it's like it's like addictively wow. readable. Um, it there's 
there's some, I mean, I had some issues. There were things about it that felt really convenient and a little simplistic or unrealistic. But yeah, it's a good book. And, you know, it, it's got mass appeal. And you, it, you can see why it has gotten so much attention. Um, it's not like, I wouldn't call it like intellectually challenging, but it's, 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 it's entertaining and immersive. And I'm glad that I read it. And I think, Nicole, you sort of felt similarly, right? I did. Yeah, I read it too. Definitely a page turner. There were some things I had issues with, but I just feel like as a whole, as a read, when you pick it up and you just, you know, cover to cover, you're really involved in there and you care about this character. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. it's a know. book that I definitely do want to read and is on my list to be read. Yeah, I, yeah, I think you should. You, I mean, you'll read it probably pretty fast. Maybe on one of your flights, you should <laughs> pick it up and you'll make a good dent in it. Um, all right. What is a book that you didn't like that everyone else around you liked? Well, that's a difficult question because um, I actually I have a personal policy that I will never ever say something negative about another book in public, and it's not that I don't believe in reviews because I do. They're incredibly important, and readers need to be guided to know where to spend their time and where to spend their money. But it's just it's it's just like you know someone who like refuses to wear red lipstick. I mean, it's not a moral choice of mine. It's just that I'm an author myself, and I know how very mm -hmm. very hard it is, and how to write a book and to get it published and, you know, and how much it hurts if someone criticizes it. It's not that you shouldn't because it is just kind of a necessary evil that if you don't like a book, I mean, <laughs> I, you know, people do need guidance. But on the other hand, you know, I personally just don't do it because I just can't put down, you know, a book in, in that way. You know, that makes a lot and of sense. And I really respect that. I respect yeah. that. And I'm glad that you say that as opposed to, you know, answering the question or whatever. And I appreciate that because I feel like a lot of authors, when you really love a book, like we want to hear when people really love a book. But I know that with when I read some things or when you see some things that have been praised, I do feel like people respect the work in a way that a reader is not going to like you want to be nice because you, you know how much hard work has gone into this endeavor and how difficult it is to be a writer, which is sort of a separate thing from if you've achieved what you've set out to accomplish or what a reader expects. Right. And, you know, and I think it, it's, you know, I write books and I definitely, of course, I read a lot and I do have opinions based on my personal taste about books. But just as someone in the field, I'm not going to put someone else down. And I, you know, and I know there are a lot of people who are happy to do that job for me because I was once in England, I think I was at Oxford University for a prize ceremony and I've been shortlisted for an international award and we were hanging around afterwards, you know, with all all the VIPs of England, of the literary elite in England, drinking champagne. And I was talking to a very important reviewer, I think for the Sunday Times. And I, I said this, I said, you know, I don't normally write reviews. In other words, I would never write a very negative review about someone, then I would choose not to write the review. And the reviewer looked at me and she said, oh my God, 
I have no problem with that at all. She said, I like to, she said, I just <laughs> like to stab the knife in and give it a good twist. You know, and I thought, oh no, right. And I thought, well, you know, that's why you're a reviewer. <laughs> and I'm sure you're a really good reviewer. And please don't read any of my books. But uh, yes, uh, you know, everyone's different in that way. So it's, you know, live and let live. Yeah. Nicole and I have the luxury that we don't write. You know, we sit here and we can, you know, take, we can make our petty little complaints about books, but we don't have to ever be on the receiving end of that, you know, except when people review the podcast, which is a completely <laughs> different thing. So, um, you know, yeah. I don't even know if we ever, I mean, there are very few books I feel like that we have just really gone after. I can, I would think maybe a handful. I don't know if we get to that point. I don't, I think that we're at the point where if something is so terrible, we're probably not finishing mm-hmm. it. And it's just sort of like, yeah, I couldn't get into it, couldn't finish it. And, you know, and the fact is, I mean, reviewers and bloggers, it is important, of course, for an honest, for honest voices to be heard because there is just, there are so many books and people do need guidance. Mm -hmm. They do need to know, oh, I should spend my time here and not my time there. So it's not, you know, I definitely think it's a worthy thing to do, to be honest about your opinion about something you've read. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, totally. I just, yeah. I think sometimes, Nicole, I can be a little little obnoxious. There's one book in particular that I have really panned multiple times on the show. What, Um, Carousel Court? No, not Carousel Court. It was... um, You're just like... You know what? I won't even... I'm not even going to say because, like, I don't need to, like, add yet another episode where I go off on this book. But um, oh my gosh, I can't even believe that I can't. You know what it is. That I can't even remember, even though I, I, I probably do know what it is. You know what it is. When I, uh, when when we finish up, I'll. You can remind me later. Yeah, I'll text you. Okay, what's up next? All right. So up next next is Jean. Let's say you're a little bit early for your next appearance, or no, your no, your appearance is in a bookstore. Let's say you're in a bookstore, but you're early and you're scoping it out, and someone comes up to you and says, "Here's twenty five dollars. Go buy something." And you're in a bookstore. What are you going to buy? <laughs> well, I think the book I want to buy, the one that I'd actually really like to get um, to read right now that I don't have yet is not actually out yet, but it's My Dark Vanessa by Kate Elizabeth Russell. Mm. And that's a very big debut Ooh. that's coming out in June 2020. In that's 2020, right. And there's right. already a lot yeah. of hype about it. And um, I met Kate recently when I was just in New York for Book Expo. And I, it just seems like a really fascinating book because it's a about um, a 15-year-old. It's a kind of Lolita story. It's a 15-year-old who gets entangled in an affair with her 42-year-old English teacher. And it kind of switches back and forth between present and past. And I have obviously not read it yet, um, although I think the galleys are already starting to be distributed to early readers. But it just sounds like a kind of fantastic, you know, really a charged read. Yeah, I actually got that one at Book Expo because it's a Buzz book, yeah. Editor Buzz book. Yeah, it was the mm-hmm. Buzz panel book, yeah. I think. Yeah, I last week Gail talked about it. Yeah, I have it sitting on my dining room table. So, so um, I'd give, it looks I'd really good. I have to give I agree. you my 25 bucks. Okay, <laughs> I'll send it to you. Got it. All right, well, those were the questions we had for you. So the next thing we're going to do on the show today is talk about coming actually, of age. Oh, did I miss we one? We are, but I – no, we didn't miss one, but I just wanted to ask Jean. It says that you're one of seven children. How do you find your time to read? Like, I just want 
to know. I think it's, you know, for people who are trying to read more and trying to get motivated around that and just for my curiosity, how do you find the time to read when you've got six oh, right. siblings? Right. Well, it's not even the siblings now because, of course, you know, we're all kind of grown up and out of the house. But I do have a husband and two kids and I'm a writer myself and have four you know, very aggressive cats who, like, you know, are jealous if you're <laughs> doing cats. other stuff than, you know, petting them. Um, and, oh, you know, I have the busy life that everyone has with travel and all of that. So it is a challenge to find time to read, but I always, always, always make time to read because it's my number one pleasure. And I think the thing I do that gives me a lot of time to read is I don't really watch TV. Um, I really, I just, it's not that I have anything against TV or any kind of moral thing. I think there are great things on TV. I just don't have the time. And if it's between watching TV or reading a book, I'd always read a book. I'm always happier after I read a book. And nowadays, you know, you have your iPad, you have so much stuff that can distract you. But I just know for myself that if I kind of turn off the internet and I go to a book instead, I'm usually like just kind of much happier, more peaceful after that. So I read every single day. I mean, every night usually that when it's me time and I've done all of the work that I feel like I need to do, what I do is I read. And, but how did you do that growing up? When I, did you do it growing up? Did you read as much? Yeah, I actually, I, I always read a lot growing up. But when I was much younger, you know, when I was a child, I didn't have any money to buy books. So it was only the library. And I loved our public library. And I read every single book in the children's section of our library. I went from beginning to end. I read every single book from A to Z. I remember doing that. And then as I got older, you know, I... I was, of course, um, a literature major at Harvard. So they gave me enough to read, like all of Shakespeare in one, <laughs> you know, in one semester um, and stuff like that. But yeah, I always, I always found time to read because it's my number one pleasure. It's the thing I like more than everything else in the world, pretty much. All right. So coming of age. All right. So coming of age, we're going to talk, we're each going to talk about two coming of age books that... We have read at some point in our lives, doesn't have to be recently, and we don't know what the other ones have picked, so we may overlap, and just talk about, you know, what what we remember from it and what we liked about it. Well, Jean, for, before we get into that a, a lot, like, you have written a couple of novels, and even this one is probably coming of age. What attract? I mean, what is it about that? There's so many novels, classic novels, you know, when you think about to Kill a Mockingbird or A Tree Goes in Brooklyn, like classic novels, Lord of the Flies, that deal with coming of age. So what what is it about that, do you think, that makes it so attractive? And what made that attractive for you to write about that point in people's lives? Well, you know, I never made a conscious decision to write novels about coming of age. But I do think that it's a kind of incredibly poignant and important moment in a person's life, you know, when you lose that innocence from childhood, it's inherently dramatic, you know, and indeed, I think, you know, searching for Sylvie Lee is actually billed as a suspense or a mystery, a suspenseful um, family drama. But in a lot of ways, it also is a coming of age novel, because it's about Amy 
growing up and pulling herself together to try to figure out what happened to her brilliant older sister who's disappeared. And there is just something about that loss of innocence and that, you know, it's both nostalgic, it's necessary. We're proud of the person for moving forward. There's inherent character change in the story. There are just so many things that make it really compelling, I think, both to write about and to read. There's always so much emotion going on in that time of life, you know. Things feel yeah. <clears throat> emotions feel stronger. You think you 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 experience things more strongly than later in life. Yeah, when everything everything else going on, survival is just crowding everything yeah. out. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's such pure emotion when you're younger, and it's interesting because you know we talk a lot. You know, I talk about I I'm a you know I love reading novel set in college, which of course is a big coming of age time. I think I'm thinking of them as college novels, but this is about, like you said, that loss of innocence, that figuring things out, you know, when things happen to you. And if you've been able to lead maybe a more sheltered kind of life that you are now exposed to different things. And of course, you know, in modern times, I feel like when I was talking about those classics, um, Anne of Green Gables or just the classic books that I feel like so many people have read, you know, it's interesting to see now how coming of age sort of gets spun out a little bit longer, like before it might've been when you were a teenager and now it's when you're in college. And sometimes it's even a little bit older than that. You have these coming of age novels. I think that's really true. And by the way, when you mentioned Anne of Green Gables, I thought that was interesting because I just happened to do an in-conversation and an, an NPR interview with Sarah McCoy, who wrote Marilla of Green Gables. That's another book that I have mm-hmm. not yet read, which I really want to, because it's her, you know, it's her take on Marilla from Anne of Green Gables. And that was, Anne of Green Gables, of course, was such a pivotal book for so many of us. Um, but yeah, I also, I agree. I think that th- there's also something, I'm the mother of two kids and, you know, I want them to stay kids forever. You know, I want them to to keep their innocence and never have to kind of be disillusioned and go out into the hard world. And on the one hand, you have that desire. And on the other hand, you know that it's a part of our human journey to lose that innocence and to become an adult and to step into the world stage. And there's something both tragic, poignant, and beautiful about that. Um, all right. So should we... Right. Should we each yes. talk about what we have? Yeah, let's do a round. Uh, Jean, do you want to start us off with a coming-of-age yeah. novel that you particularly yes, love? Yes, I, I'd love to talk about two coming-of-age novels that are kind of two classics that I have read and reread so many times. And one is Never Let Me Go by Kazuo Ishiguro. Um, that's one of my favorite books because... I think he's a phenomenal writer and such a beautiful, subtle, uh, precise writer. And it's, of course, the book about, it was also made into a movie about Kathy, who is the narrator and the protagonist. And she talks about her education at a place called Halsham. And it seems, you know, she and her friends, Tommy and Ruth, seem like kind of normal kids who are growing up and they really love Hailsham and, you know, they can make art and they have some 
pretty undemanding courses. But then, as the story goes on, you realize, well, they can't leave the campus, and they have to make sure that they don't harm their bodies. And then, eventually, you realize, of course, that they are clones, and that their only purpose is to serve as organ donors for the very wealthy people who have cloned them. And so, it becomes this,、uh, you know, kind of heartbreaking and poignant story of what happens to these clones. I never never knew that. That's what the that really. <laughs> oh my、yeah. god! Yeah, no. It's also it was also made into a movie, but the book itself is just really beautiful and、um, very subtle and filled with that kind of you know it it it's it's not at all gimmicky. He does it just in a very kind of quiet way. What happens to them and you know how they have donation after donation of their organs. Um, so, and then the other book that I've you know reread so many times I love is, of course, by Margaret Atwood, who's one of my favorite writers,、um, and that's Cat's Eye, and that's her novel that's actually in a lot of ways about bullying. It's about、uh, a painter Elaine who's reflecting on her childhood and her teenage years, and of her very kind of conflicted friendship with Cordelia. Who was、um, the leader of a trio of girls, and these girls were very cruel and also kind to Elaine in many ways. So、um, I just think it's a really beautifully written and artfully constructed novel about、um, you know a young woman growing up. That is an awesome pick.、Um, it's been years and years since I read Cat's Eye, and it was so powerful. And、um, I didn't even think of it when we were talking about coming of age books, but that's ac- exactly what it is. I, I kind of want to reread that. It's been so long. It's a, it's such a beautiful book, and it's a book that I find very inspiring. Just to you know that when I'm reading it, like I will start hearing voices and characters because it's so rich in so many ways.、Um, okay, Nicole, you want to go? All right. So one of mine that I was really thinking about that I loved and is so emotional, and she's a little bit older in her coming of age. She's not a young teenager, but "Me Before You" by Jojo Moyes. I feel like Louisa is the quintessential young person living at home with her parents. She doesn't quite know what to do with herself. She is first working in this little cafe that closed, and she's forced outside of her own environment when she goes to become the caregiver of a rich, a rich man who has, who is, he's become a paraplegic, and he is forced to, I don't know, just restructure his life. His life is very different than what it once was now that he's in a wheelchair. So he is sort of coming to terms with who he is and what he who. He wants to be and what he wants to do with his life and his changed circumstances, and she's trying to figure out what it is that she wants. And of course, it's a bit of a love story. I think one of the things about Louisa that carries over through the books is that she's trying to find herself, and this is the original story where she is doing that. So I feel like that's a coming of age novel. That's another great pick that never would have dawned on me to do, but I totally agree. So many of them overlap, but when you come to the heart of it, it's just you know. I feel like coming of age, whether it's mystery or you're trying to discover something about what happened to someone, or you're a sleuth. It's like these are the things that change you and inform you at a sensitive time. And 
she was pretty young when she did that. I don't think she was any older than her early 20s. And the other one that I would say that normally we think about in terms of, I know this was the first book for me when I started branching out and sort of was out of college and starting to read on my own, just discovering different books and being open to different cultures was The Kite Runner by Khaled wow. Husseini. Yeah, that's a great one. It's about this two boys who are friends. One is from a very wealthy family and one is his poorer friend and one comes to a tragic end and it causes the other to flee. And he doesn't go back and confront what's happened until he's much older. But this is something that happens at a very formative time in their lives. And so it's a little bit of both. It's a coming of age story, but it's also coming of age when you're older and going back into con confront decisions that where maybe you couldn't do the right thing or you were on the run for from something that was traumatizing and scary, but you go back to deal with it. Coming of age books can cover a whole life or like a, a big chunk of a life as opposed to those, you know, particular years of transformation. Can that still be considered a coming of age book? I think it I think that they can, which is something I kind of alluded to where I feel like it's shifting, you know, like even when you look back into the early nineteen hundreds, when were you considered an adult? Like that's why we have so many coming of age novels that happened when you were maybe thirteen to fifteen. And as we've changed our minds about what it means to be an adult, now you think about people in their early 20s and, oh, they're kids. I just feel like it's always shifting Well, I what guess, it means I guess to what be I an mean... adult and when you reach that. But I think I, – I know what you're saying, Gail. Like can the and book I feel like cover – I think that if you're someone who was limited or maybe have had some kind of arrested development, I mean, who's to say? You know, like maybe I come of age at nine if I've had a – particularly traumatic life, but maybe some people aren't exposed to those right. quote unquote coming of age circumstances until they're much right, older. Exactly. Right. I mean, like in Searching for Sylvie Lee, Amy is in her mid-20s. But I think, you know, I think you're right that that really is also a coming of age process because she's had a relatively sheltered life until then. And then that journey to becoming an adult and being the person who takes responsibility happens, you know, over the course of the novel. So I definitely think that that can happen at all times. And it certainly can happen, you know, I think even later than that, I think there's nothing to, um, to stop that. I guess what I meant was if, if you, no matter what time of your life, the coming of age happens, if you sort of think, you know, you've kind of got a before and an after, if the book itself then goes well beyond that, and maybe they're either looking back or you just cover more, is it still considered like a coming of age novel or is that just a, you know, has it... Ha, an adult looking a, back right, novel? An adult looking back novel, right. <laughs> I don't know. I guess it's kind yeah. of a silly question. No, I think I think like, I, I I mean, would. I think that if the central, yeah, if the central precipitating moment I think happens when you're younger, mm -hmm. I feel like that kind of is... Well, I mean, I, I, for the kite runner, I say it is. Yeah, that's a good segue to the, so I picked two books and one of which I think you just kind of nailed exactly what it is. So I picked The Risen by Ron Rash, which we have, you and I Ooh, have talked about yeah. a lot, you and me, Nicole and I, um, which is a book about two brothers and there's this very seminal summer 
that happens to them when one is maybe 15 and one is 17 or, you know, somewhere thereabouts and involves a girl that they both kind of become emotionally involved with. And the book is really told much later in life. It's one of the, it's the younger of the two brothers relating what happened and, and really explaining why this one seminal summer had such a huge impact in the trajectory of his own life. So I think that you described it well. The, the coming of age is the crux of that book. And yes, it's told many years later, but it's I would still call that a coming of age novel. Well, because it informed, I would think when it informs, when that's the seminal moment that is now forming all of your choices going forward, mm-hmm. whether you realize it later or not, that that's what was driving it. That's still the driving. Right. Thing. I totally right. agree with that. All right. Well, so that was my first pick. And then my second pick is like, to me, the quintessential coming of age novel. And it's prepped by Curtis Sittenfeld, which... Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, it takes place when the main character, Lee Fiora, has gone off to a fancy boarding school and she feels like she doesn't belong. And it's sort of all about her learning how to be comfortable with herself and comfortable with this group. And of course, she kind of experiences her first love, which is her crush on... Oh, Cross Sugarman. Is that his name? The guy that (laughs) That she's in love with. Yeah, I forgot his name. I'll have to figure that if that's right or not. Something like that. And uh, I just, I want to read that book again. I loved it so much. Um, I love her so much. Yeah, Leaf, you're a cross sugar man. It oh my God. It populates itself when you start sure. typing cross I sugar man. I'm so proud of myself because I have not read that in like 15 years. Um, Lee Fiora, I got on, on Amazon, but cross sugar man, I did not. So that was, that came out of the recesses of my brain. Um, so to me, that was like when I, when we decided we wanted to talk about coming of age, I was like, well, I got to talk about prep. And I was worried that one of you guys would snag that. So to me, that's, that's just, and I'm trying to get my daughters to read it because they're just exactly at that age. And I, and I, you know, it's always hard when I, the grown up recommends a book. I need someone else to recommend it to them. But uh, I think it's, I think it was just the perfect. And they perfect also book. might be past it. They're 15, 16. So remember, teenagers read up. Yeah, but they're fresh. They just finished their freshman year. So I feel like they <laughs> could maybe relate. I don't know. I think no. you're on time. Yeah. You read about people in your 20s, don't you, when you're in yeah, high school? I guess you're right. Yeah. You had to get them You had to get them a couple of years ago, Gail. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I'm too late for prep and cross sugarman. <laughs> so, well, we would love to hear from our listeners about what their favorite coming-of-age novels are. So when you hear this episode, hop on our Facebook page, either the Readerly Report or the Readerly Report Readers. If you're not a part of that group, just sign up for the private group and maybe we can get some additional um, suggestions from readers and we will feature those on a future show. So I think that's everything that we had to discuss today. Is there anything else anyone wants to add? Well, I just, I, I want to thank both of you for having me on the show. It was so great to get to spend some time with you discussing these amazing books. Well, thank you for taking time in what is probably one of the most crazy part times of your life, uh, with the exception Exciting, of maybe having, yeah. yeah, otherwise having newborns in the house. I think this probably comes in close second to just you know, crazy, having no control of your schedule and everything. So we are very grateful that you carved out an hour to talk to us tonight and congratulate you very much on the success of Sylvie Lee. I will continue talking about it as I listen to it and um, let people know, you know, how it, how it unfolds. 
Well, I'm really curious what you think of it. So yes, please let me and let us know. I will for sure. All right. Well, thank you for coming on, and to our readers, uh, happy reading. Thank you all for having me. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Readerly Report. You can find all of our shows on iTunes or at thereaderlyreport.com. Please join our Facebook group, Readerly Report Readers, where you can talk to other listeners about the reading life. You can also find Nicole at nicolebonia.com and me, Gail, at everydayiwritethebookblog.com. Finally, we'd love it if you left us a review on iTunes and told your book-loving friends about us.